Today's podcast is sponsored by Zencaster. I use Zencaster to record the Tally Room podcast and it's an invaluable tool. I record pretty much every episode of this show remotely with my guests joining me from wherever they happen to be. Zencaster allows us to record with high quality sound even if the internet connection isn't the best. It records a high quality version on the local desktop and then uploads it when the internet connection allows, meaning that the audio the listeners hear is usually better than what I can hear when I'm recording. It also allows for recording video. I use it to be able to view my guests, but you can also record video in 1080p. On one or two occasions, I've used Zoom instead, and you really notice a difference. It's super easy to use Zencaster. I set up a link for a recording and send it to my guests, and we're getting started in minutes. Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TallyRoom, and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experience as I do for all my podcasting needs. It's time to share your story. Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. We've been expecting this for a while, but a Tasmanian election has now been called more than a year before the end of the Parliament's four-year term. Tasmanian Premier Jeremy Rockliffe has been reliant on a pair of ex-Liberal independents to govern, and in January and February, tensions between these independents and the government worsened, leading to Rockliffe calling an election for the March the 23rd. In today's episode, we'll preview that upcoming election and also briefly preview the federal by-election in Dunkley. I have two guests today. My first guest is Mike Lester. Mike is a Tasmanian political scientist and was a political journalist in Tasmania for over 20 years. Hello, Mike. Good morning. And my second guest is Stuart Jackson. Stuart is a senior lecturer in government at the University of Sydney. Hello, Stuart. Good morning, Ben and Mike. So Tasmania is a little bit different to most states in Australia in that they use a proportional electoral system to elect their lower house, which does often mean uh, they have had much slimmer majority governments and more often had minority governments. Um, But Mike, you were last on this podcast the week before the 2021 election, and that did result in the Liberal Party winning a slim majority, um, but they didn't hold on to that majority. What happened in the meantime that changed things? Well, quite a lot, really. Um, Well, as you just uh, pointed out, the Libs ran on a stable majority government platform in 2021. Uh, They won 13 of the 25 seats, which gave them majority. Labor had nine, the Greens two, and there was one independent, uh, a woman called Christy Johnson, who was an ex-mayor of an inner Hobart suburb, uh, Glenorchy. So that was the setup. Between the election and May last year, the, the Libs had already lost seven ministers of a cabinet of nine uh, for various reasons. Uh, most of them were just resignations for, um, well, the Premier himself at the time, Peter Gutwin, uh, said that he was exhausted, worn out by uh, leading the state through the COVID response and also through the election campaign in 2021. So he resigned soon after and handed over to his deputy, uh, Jeremy Rockcliffe. Uh, Six other ministers resigned for health or other reasons over that period. And then in May last year, of course, you had Lara Alexander in Bass and John Tucker in Lyons, um, who both resigned from the Liberal Party over the government's pursuit of a $715 million AFL stadium in Hobart to be built on a fairly sensitive area on Hobart's waterfront. And this is all part of a deal uh, that the government was pursuing to get for the first time a Tasmanian team into the AFL. 
a lot of people reacted to it, have reacted to it and, and continue to do so, saying that the state government's contribution of that, which is about half of the $715 million, is just too high a price and that the money would be better spent in other areas like health and education and so on. So they want the money not spent on an AFL stadium. That was the main issue that triggered the resignation of those two, but it was also from their point of view and what they said in the media, it was also over the fact that the government was fairly secretive about the arrangements at the time that it had with the AFL and it was hard to get information out of them. So it was more of a transparency issue, if you like, rather than just a straight, we don't like this project type response. And then there are a number of other issues which also went back to that transparency the government's apparent inability to communicate what was going on with other members of parliament, including within their own party. So as a result of all that, the government was reduced to 11, which is, of course, a minority out of uh, 25. And Labor also lost a member, David O'Byrne, who was a leader of the party for a nanosecond, but was kicked out over an issue that he had, it was sexual harassment sort of issue, but, it, but he wasn't found guilty of any breach of uh, Labor Party rules or any breach of any law, in fact. So David's continued in Parliament. So Labor's reduced to eight and there's a Labor-aligned independent so that for the first time the Greens have a lot of company on the crossbenches. And, of course, over that whole period, not only have the two uh, rebel Liberals threatened no-confidence motions but back at the beginning when they left in May last year, but also just recently, as you mentioned in the introduction, in uh, January and February. And they've also backed a Labor-Green inquiry into one of the ministers, again, over a transparency issue. And that hearing hasn't... Uh, it was to be a parliamentary committee hearing, but that hasn't occurred as such. So the government was facing a minister being put under pressure had Parliament returned. And there was a number of other issues that uh, the two members had pursued as well. Uh, you know, they supported motions in Parliament, which meant the government was losing um, debates on the floor. So all that led Jeremy Rockcliffe to his current point. One of the things that's really interesting about this election as well is the change in the electoral system. And Tasmania has, for the last few decades, elected five member districts, electing a total of 25. But this election, they're bumping up to 35. Um, both, do you have thoughts on why they needed to do this and the history of this tweak to the voting system and how it changes things, but also like what that might mean for this election that makes it different? I'll leap straight in. Although Mike, actually, his PhD is, of course, on minority government. Of course, minority government or the threat of it is where was what leads us to having only 25 members in Tasmania. Um, it was really a, a case of both uh, Labor and Liberal ganging up to make sure that, that they passed a change to the electoral system back in the 90s um, to reduce the number of MPs to 25. Problem is, 25 means that government is 13, certainly when you're in a majority. That's a very small number of MPs to be in government when you have a full set of portfolios, certainly as we do now as the, as the responsibilities of government increase. It's become increasingly untenable that you continue to operate with only 25 to govern the whole of uh, Tasmania, when 13 or maybe 14, if you're lucky and you're in coalition, maybe even 15, um, would be the total number of MPs in the government. Increasing it to 35 really does start to address the problem of how many people does it take to govern a place? Well, you'd expect to have enough 
ministers to be able to adequately fill their ministerial responsibilities. When you look at, say, New South Wales with its, you know, 90-odd members, it, you know, you have 45, 50 in government, you have plenty of talent to choose from in terms of picking the right ministers. When you've got 12 or 13, well, there's not a lot of choice. Um, this will at least partly address that. It'll also increase the representation for people. So rather than just saying, well, okay, I've got maybe two Labour and a Green to go to if I've got green issues or environmental issues, that's who I can go to in lawn system. In one sense, though, you know, Australia is quite lucky in having quite a strong local government areas that can actually pick up some of the slack. Um, but nonetheless, it's, it's a very small number of MPs. We've seen the ACT increase its numbers to create a pool of talent of people who can actually run government. I've seen examples as well where governments, it certainly also happened in the ACT, where, you know, a governing party, if they might have 11 members, if particularly if they're a minority, and they have like eight or nine portfolio, and they're like, well, we need one person to be the speaker. One MP is completely new and has just started and has no experience and there's someone else who's old and on the, on the way out the door and, like, if you're the chief minister or the premier or someone in that position, you don't really have any choice, right? You kind of need to make everyone else a minister because that's all there is there is available. The reason for the reduction in the number of parliamentarians back in 1998 arose out of originally a bad decision to award parliamentarians a 40% pay rise in '93, which caused a huge backlash across the electorate. And the government's reason for doing that at the time, a Liberal majority government, was that they wanted to catch up on a pay rise that had been that were held at bay for a decade. So and it was, there was a good reason for it, but it caused such a backlash that the government felt that it uh, needed to say, well, if everybody else is suffering pain, we should suffer some pain and we should reduce the size of parliament. So the Legislative Council was also reduced from 19 down to 15 at the same time as the House of Assembly was reduced from 35 to 25. And, of course, the fact they thought that it would help get rid of Greens uh, was a, um, a contributing and probably a major forefront of their minds as well. So I'm not disputing that. The impact of it has been, as uh, Stuart has quite rightly pointed out, is that with such a small number of um, in a majority government, uh, even when they had 15, as the Hodgman government did in 2014, uh, even when they've got 15 members, it gives you a limited number of backbenchers to choose new ministers from and you have to fill all the committee positions and you have to fill the speakership and, and so on. And when you get resignations, uh, as we've had a lot of over these last three governments, it always causes a problem in who's going to you know, come in to fill the vacancies and so on. So, yes, it, it does cause problems. But looking forward, this is going to be the first election in I don't know how long, but going back beyond the 60s, where there's been 10 vacant seats. Of 35 seats, 10 of them have no incumbent member. So that means that uh, independents are coming out of the woodwork everywhere to stand. Just to recount for people who don't know about Tasmania, there are five seats. Each seat will have seven members uh, to make up the 35. So each of the parties have nominated seven for uh, each of the electorates. 
But there are so many independents as the independents that we know of, which is David O'Byrne Labor in Franklin and Christy Johnson in Clark and and then a former Speaker of the House, a Liberal, uh, who lost a seat last time around is, um, uh, is standing again as an independent and the Mayor of Clarence, which is a city on the opposite side of the river to Hobart, is also an ex-Liberal but is thinking of standing as an independent and, and so on. There are people coming out of woodwork everywhere. I want to talk a bit more about those parties and independence in a minute and I've actually we're recording this on Friday and I've done a blog post this morning looking at those numbers and and those trends but Stuart can we just talk a little bit about what's the mechanics of like why would we think that seven member districts rather than five member districts would make such a difference like why did it hurt the Greens in 1998 when they went from seven to five like more specifically than it hurt the Labor and Liberal parties that it specifically hurt the Greens in greater proportion. It simply reduces the number of uh, votes you actually need. The percentage you need is dropped um, for any member to get elected. Uh, that means it's it's possible. Given we we have a hair clerk system, you have, we have preferential voting, so you actually have the movement of votes. But you actually just need less votes to get elected. Certainly in a percentage term, um, and potentially in an actual number term. And that percentage specifically is. A quota would have previously been 16.7, I think, and now it will be 12.5%. So the actual vote you need has gone down. So the quota is reduced to 12.5%. That makes it that much easier to reach, or at least that's the impression that people will have. Given the relative size of Tasmania, um, that is, it's not like if this was in New South Wales, that would still mean, okay, I've got to reach or I've got to actually get you know, um, what, a million votes. And that's still, you know, extremely difficult. In Tasmania, those sorts of numbers are simply not required. It's like a small council versus a very large council. I can think of Peppermint Grove in Western Australia with its, you know, couple of thousand voters and Blacktown uh, here in New South Wales with, you know, 350,000. Um, so you have a smaller number of people that you need to reach to get to, to vote for you. That's great. You can actually do that, particularly in seats like uh, less so in Bass and Braddon, but certainly in Franklin to get the core of the voters and in Hobart. Uh, it will tend to bring out people who say, well, this is a little easier to get elected in. I've got a chance. I can certainly also influence the direction of the votes. So who's going to be elected by saying, hey, I'm standing, you know, I'm standing in support of this issue. People can actually see who's on which side. And one of the things I've been really interested in recently is like political science from other countries is showing like the number of members you elect per district and the size of the assembly combined actually change how people vote. They change which parties and candidates decide to contest the election and lead to both more candidates running, more parties getting votes and more diverse parliaments. Like all of these things play and have an effect. And so this is a really interesting experiment because we're both seeing an increase in the magnitude and an increase in the assembly size. And there's a metric they use where they multiply those two numbers together. And so Tasmania has gone from 125 to 245 and so you would expect from that metric that you would get like double as much diversity basically from that increase even though that increase seems quite modest and like there might be other reasons for this as well to do with the specific politics of the moment but frankly you look at the list of candidates who's running this time and you have to say it's looking like that theory is playing out and I'll 
jump to you in a second, Stuart, but the blog post I had today, and we'll come back to this as well, shows one of the metrics I looked at was the share of the vote that went to parties that weren't Labor, Greens, Liberal, and it cracked 10% for the first time in 2021. And right now, based on the field of candidates we've got, all those independents you listed, Mike, I've accounted like eight or nine viable, serious, maybe not all winnable, but like people making a serious effort independence, um, not random ungrouped candidates, but people putting in a proper effort. And most elections, you'd be lucky if you got one or two, right? So Stuart, there's also these other parties contesting, Lambie, Shooters and Fishers and Farmers. What do you think about their role in this election? Well, it is actually very interesting. I mean, I've actually just returned from Mongolia, which has also just changed its electoral system. Um, so it's increased its number of uh, MPs from um, 78 to 176 to 146. It's got 48 list MPs now, which it didn't have before. Uh, the magnitude in each of the um, multi-member seats has increased from th- 3 to 10. Uh, there's now t- something like 37 parties running. Um, it's increased the number of people actually wanting to or thinking they can get elected into parliament. Uh, it's actually changed the dynamic uh, in that country. And I think it will have a similar effect, certainly initially, uh, in Tasmania. Obviously, you know, when you've got 48 list tickets nationally to get, you know, that would be one thing. Trying to get 35 out of five. Uh, seats is a little harder, obviously, um, but I think it's had the same dynamic where it gives the appearance of being easier to win. Uh, people will make serious efforts to actually um, gain those votes and will make serious efforts to actually reach out to uh, the the electorate, which itself can't, it can't be seen as a bad thing, actually, that at least they're engaging. Whether preferences flow, keeping in mind it is a Hare Clark system, will that 10% aggregate to see someone get elected is quite a separate issue. And it may well be that we see lots of votes scattering all over the place, but then not going anywhere. Mike, this is actually a question for you. That that measure I looked at from my blog post, which you might not have had a chance to look at, which looked at that non-Labor Liberal Greens vote, which was very low and it kind of rose in the mid-90s and then dropped again. And we see it rise again in 2014, 2018, and then surges in 2021. There was actually some discussion about the role of the Greens in Tasmania in recent years because they've had this backward shift. Their vote has dropped away from the really high levels it reached in the late 2000s leading up to 2010. And one of the theories I heard was when the Greens went into government with Labor, the experience of that kind of short-term hurt them but also meant in the long-term anti-establishment candidates were looking for somewhere else to go. The polls suggest, as well as the previous election results, that we're heading towards a minority government and there's going to be a big increase in the vote for independents as well as for the Greens. However, um, there there are a couple of things to remember here. First of all, as others have pointed out, Tasmania has a a tendency to swing towards the party they think is going to win a majority as an election gets close. So since um, 1998, in fact, we've had three Labor majority governments because people thought that Labor were, were going to get the majority. And then we had one minority government in between, which was the Giddings government with the Greens in Cabinet. And then we had three Liberal majority governments after that. And also the other long-term issue in Tasmania is that 
minority governments have always been followed by majority governments and for quite an extensive period of time. So the question is whether or not people see the current term as a minority government or just a failed majority government. The polls would suggest that we're heading towards a minority, but there could be a late swing back. The last credible poll put the Liberals on 39%. You'd need around about 45% across the state to win a majority government, 45 46%. It's never even across all the electorates. The Liberals are always much stronger in Bass, Braddon and uh, Lyons than they are in the South. The Greens are always stronger in the South. Labor's always stronger in the South, or has been up until recent times. The only recent example of the Jackie Lambie network was at the uh, 2018 election where they stood 13 candidates in three electorates, but they only got 3.16% of the statewide vote, the majority in Braddon in actual fact, and the rest of the, the area didn't go all that well. And the other fact, just to complete that picture, is that the Greens haven't won a seat in Lyons or Braddon since 2010, and they haven't won a seat in Bass since 2014. So while on paper it looks like it's going to be an easier task because the percentage has come down, None of those parties actually got up to anywhere near, in, in those electorates, in those northern electorates, none of the parties actually got up anywhere near the percentage required to win a seat. The two new Liberals, um, between them, got 4,500 votes at the last election, in first preference votes. I don't think either of them have got a chance to, to in a competition against other Liberal candidates. So I think it's going to be that on paper, while you think this is going to happen, I, I think there's a good chance, in, in my view, that we'll end up with a majority uh, Liberal government again, simply because they're already well ahead in the percentage compared to Labor. So they'll get that bandwagon effect uh, that I was talking about earlier. <clears throat> it's not a big rise to go from 39 to 46. It is a big rise for Labor to make that jump from 29% or 30%, roughly, to uh, enough to win a majority government. So it's... um. Uh, I think on balance you'd have to say that. Nevertheless, I, you know, I think independents and Greens will win seats in, uh, in Franklin and Denison, definitely. How many is hard to know. You often do get rhetoric from one major party or the other, probably the one that's in a closer position to the majority, to say you need to vote for us so we get a majority, so we don't have a minority parliament, we don't have a hung parliament. And I think a lot of that comes from a dynamic, though, of a period where really the only viable options were Labor, Liberal, Greens. And so a hung parliament means Greens balance power, like by definition. That's not necessarily the case anymore. I think you're probably right about some of those independents who have been bigged up not really being viable. And I think probably Lambie, I'm, I'm sceptical about Lambie winning seats, certainly sceptical about her network winning a lot of seats. Um, but... You have that dynamic of the major parties back and forth competing over a group of swing voters who are Labor Liberal swing voters but really don't like the Greens and want to lock the Greens out. And so it becomes a question of saying you should vote for us strategically because we can win a majority and the other side can't. And we're seeing that again. We've seen the Liberals running ads with traffic lights saying Labor, Lambie and Greens are going to be in government together. But Stuart... Do you think that argument maybe is losing its potency as getting harder and harder for them to win that majority, like to make that case to win? I mean, um, I think, Mike, you make a good case that Liberals have a chance of winning a majority, but it still seems hard and I wonder if there'd be some Liberal voters who are like, well, a Liberal relying on some of those other independents who aren't Greens, that might not be such a bad thing. Personally, I think there's a whole lot has happened 
in the intervening years from when we could say we're going to have majority Labor or majority Liberal. There's been several experiences of minority governments. Minority governments have actually been quite useful and been quite productive um, where they've been. So, you know, people sort of say, oh, you've got to have a majority, you know, I've got to have a mandate. Well, there's two houses of parliament as well. So actually the, the arguments for me has never really flown terribly well. That said, um, there is the question of, do we have, this is the question of, do we have enough MPs, which I think in the past has been, you know, with only a small number of MPs to elect, you know who the people are. It's actually a little easier to say, well, this is a group of people we want to put in government. The increased number uh, defrays that, you know, I know all the MPs or I know who I'm voting for. Here's my my five or seven votes. In this case, it'll be seven, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and more if you want. I think we'll see, a, this is what I was talking about, defraying of the vote, where people it will start to scatter um, and people will not necessarily, I mean, not that you have had a vote cards in Tasmania, but people won't necessarily follow through in a logical way in terms of preferential voting or where they'll just vote for one ticket if it's a full ticket. Um, if they've done a full ticket, great, they've got all their, their seven votes and that's it where it'll stop. There are problems with that, obviously, because it means that you can start losing votes. And this is where I've been saying that you lose or you don't aggregate those votes together to allow independents, minor parties to win seats. Now, of course, you do have a reducible quota. There's different ways of doing it. But still, you know, it means that you do have exhausted votes, which does reduce the capacity of independents to aggregate enough votes together to win. Um, we don't have to go into the electoral mechanics. I just think it's harder for them to put together enough to win seats. That said, seven seats has always been the other magic number. The seventh seat will tend to go towards a um, minor party or independent. This is experience elsewhere. It's the same with the five seats. It's where there'll be a big enough block of votes that you could possibly win, or an independent or other party might win that seat as opposed to the two major parties. As for the rhetoric, well, every government wants to be able to rule in its own right. Um, they all say only we can deliver X for the Tasmanians or for New South Wales or for Victoria. Um, they both said it in New South Wales, the last New South Wales elections, and we end up with minority government. Yes, they have support from independents, but don't do the right thing and the independents can turn on a dime. Um, that's actually you know a well-known phenomena and indeed you'd have thought with uh, alexander and tucker that they would have kept supporting um, a liberal government but actually they didn't when they started to push the government and say hey you know you're not doing the right thing and we're not going to have you do it on our watch interesting for two liberal elected mps i do think that the rhetoric is what it is that the party wants to not have to deal with other people um, not negotiate uh, You'd have thought that after all these years in federal parliament and having to deal with the Senate and upper house and indeed in Tasmania and dealing with a Senate that is chock-a-block full of independence, that they'd be used to dealing and negotiating with other parties other than their own. So I often look at it and go, no, it's rhetoric. They just want to be able to win. Uh, and that's their way of projecting confidence and saying, well, give us the majority, we'll do it, and we'll push forward with our program. It's interesting you mentioned uh, that the negotiating thing because the question has been raised by a couple of people is, 
when he lost support of Alexander and Tucker, why didn't the Premier go to David O'Byrne, who's an independent, and go to uh, Christy Johnson, who's an independent, and negotiate a supply and confidence uh, agreement with them? You know, they're, they're still there rather than call another election. I think that um, perhaps some leaders are more skilled at uh, doing the negotiations than others. The rhetoric is common. I mean, every party says they want to rule a majority. Of course I do. You know, um, and in fact, you know, I can't see anything wrong politically in saying I want you to elect um, me as, you know, or our party as a majority. It's where they go too far, in my view, and from my thesis, which was in minority government, the parties go too far and say that we won't deal with anybody else. And that is, of course, crazy because... The convention in Australia and in all those countries that follow the British tradition is that there is always a government that in the event that there is no deal done at the end of this period of election and if it's a minority or hung parliament, the government of the day will remain the government of the day it, until it goes into the parliament and if a no-confidence motion is moved against it, then it could fall. But in the, if everyone's saying they're not going to do deals and the government just goes in, no one moves a no-confidence motion, no one votes against them, then they just remain on in minority and they have to reach accommodation on every piece of legislation. So it's a less stable arrangement than actually doing a deal. So if you want stability, do a deal of some kind. The stadium. The stadium was a controversy. It has effectively like brought down the government's majority. I've heard it talked about like it's very unpopular outside of the south part of Tasmania and then there's also kind of maybe the more left part of the voters base in the south of Tasmania is not a fan either so you're kind of only left with about you know a quarter of the state who's in support is it actually that unpopular and do you think it's the kind of issue that's going to be dominating how people vote or was it just the kind of thing that was something that riled up the politicians within the parliament? I think it's a, a bigger issue in the south than it is anywhere else. Um, it's not that popular in the other regions, but on the other hand, I don't think it's a vote changer in Bass or Braden or Lyons so much as in Hobart itself. So it's been unpopular because of the cost and because of the location. And, you know, um, the Hobart City Council, which is uh, sort of very green leading, as actually prefers an alternative proposal that was put up by an unsolicited proposal uh, for a site further over on the Hope, still on Hobart's waterfront, but away from the Salamanca, you know, the Sullivan's Cove waterfront area. And um, that proposal, the council's actually agreed to um, to give them the land if they ever got approval for the development. So it, it's hard to know. No one's done a full survey of how popular it is or isn't. But my guess is that, you know, most people in, in other regions are going to be voting for other issues. For example, um, the salmon industry is a big issue down here. Uh, logging is still a big issue. Mining is still a big issue. And people in Braddon and Lyons are more likely to be influenced by those sorts of issues. And by how the economy is running. And, and in the South, it's sort of more tourism and, and so on and health and education. But it's the bread and butter issues that will be, people will vote on mainly. We are going into this election having changed all the leaderships from the last election. So there's no, you know, um, Auburn or Godwine or, or uh, for that matter, Cassie O'Connor. So there's been a, a shift, as it were, within the parties. And I often wonder whether... You know, it, it does make a difference as to how people perceive the party when they've when they've lost, a, if you like, a, a popular or well-known leader. 
you're right about uh, you know the Greens, for example. You know, they've lost Cassie, so they've got two new people. Uh, Rosalie Woodruff is the leader of two people, and Vicar Bailey. Neither of them are really that well known. They're not big names like Cassie and other Green leaders in Tasmania have been, like Christine Milne and Nick McKimmon and uh, Bob Brown. Bob Brown, of course. Jeremy Rockcliffe is a new leader, but he was a triumphant of uh, people who came out of the core of the uh, party, of the Liberal opposition, and it was Hodgman, Gutwin and Rockcliffe. Rockcliffe was deputy to the other two, so he's pretty well known. He's very well liked in Braddon in particular. So, And the other final point I'd like to make about this is that it's fairly simple arithmetic, really. You need, for a party to win a majority, you need to win four seats in at least three electorates and you need to win three in the other two you know, to get a majority. So the Liberals would, I think, do well in, in um, Braddon and probably achieve the four in Braddon and Lyons. I'm not so sure about Bass at the moment. Prior to this election, they had three out of the five. So the arithmetic is, is difficult, but the Liberals have less far to jump from their current 11 to 18 than Labor has from 8 to 18, you know. So a majority Liberal or a minority government are the, you know, the only real options, I think. The votes for the Greens, well, they've shifted several times, but they shifted after Christine Milne and Bob Brown decided to first leave Tasmanian politics, but then leave federal politics. So the very high-profile leadership from Tasmania steps away. McKim's well-known, um, but he has his own detractors. And I just think that as it's moved along, the leadership has been, certainly from the Greens, in terms of this is the third block of votes, has been diminishing in terms of its status, certainly perceived status. This is nothing against Rosalie Woodruff, but, you know, she's relatively, relatively speaking, relatively unknown. Um, and as you said, uh, was it Vicar Bailey is, is even more unknown. They had become then a bit of an unknown uh, case. Will they be any good uh, on the crossbenches? Will they be useful in terms of putting forward different ideas? What's their public positions? We'll need to wait and see, obviously, how they go in the next term. But uh, my own sense is that the Green vote will be buoyed solely by the past experiences of Greens in government, you know, the stances they've taken fairly normally, uh, and there won't be any massive shifts. The vote will go up slightly. They don't have, if you like, the star power to draw any um, uh, major vote shifts towards them. Well, I wanted to make a comment about shooters and fishers because um, I think it's very interesting them running in Tasmania. The Nationals previously had tried to run and failed, and I'm not entirely convinced that shooters and fishers are the right fit for Tasmania. So why are they putting themselves up? Is this going to be you know a quixotic run? You know they they maybe have you know one percent at most. Um, the problem, I suppose, for the Liberal Party, is too many parties running to the right of them, of course, drains that primary vote. And this is where I'm, I'm, I'm a little less confident than Mike about Liberal majority, because they may have a little bit too much to the right of them running and drawing off just enough votes to keep them away from majority. Uh, where those extra votes actually end up, of course, is a good question. 
but they could, of course, scatter. And this is the, my point about, you know, when there's no how-to-vote cards, then the vote can start to move around a lot more easily than if you have somebody saying, this is what you should do when people follow the card. When they don't have that, there can be a scattering. We've seen that, you know, in previous Tasmanian elections where you can end up with a Green being elected or you can end up with a Green not being elected with high vote. And we've seen that also in the ACT. As you pointed out earlier, I think, is the last seat in every electorate is usually uh, decided without a quota. So it's a matter of how close you are between each of the major parties and, and whichever independent or green or other minor parties manages to stay ahead of the cut-up just to get the preferences. But the other point I make about preferences flow, and the reason the three parties that are uh, more likely to win seats always nominate uh, a full list in each electorate is to try to keep the vote and exhaust it before it goes to anybody else. And of course, that works against independent independents because they have nowhere else to get votes from. Once anyone around them, other independents are exhausted, they're not going to pick up that many votes from, say, the Liberal Party, because the Liberal Party people will tend to vote down the ticket. And we know that because, for example, in in this current government, we've had seven resignations of ministers from parliament, we have a recount system in Tasmania rather than a by-election. And in in each of the recounts, no one else has had a show of getting elected other than a Liberal Party member from each of those recounts. So we know that that people tend to stay you know, in the party that they voted for, you know, one to seven or one to five in the previous election. So it will make it hard. It's not impossible that I don't rule it out. I'm not, I wouldn't say I was confident about uh, a liberal majority, but I, I think it's a lot more likely than not. Finally, before we go, we're just one week out from a federal by-election in the Victorian seat of Dunkley, where Labor MP Peter Murphy sadly passed away from cancer at the end of 2023. Stuart, how is this race looking? I actually find it an interesting race. It's very different from, say, Aston. It's a Labor sitting member who passed away who was gaining in popularity. Uh, She was increasing a margin um, ahead of the Victorian average. It's an interesting seat in and of itself simply because... It's out of metropolitan. If you look at its demographics, you would actually say, oh, this is a white, tradie, slightly lower education. This is not an inner city seat. Which way it goes will be very interesting. Will it be a seat that swings against the government? This is a bit where I go, oh, those tax breaks might actually be working for them when it comes to a seat like Dunkley, because these are the people that will have been picking up some of the tax cuts. Certainly, given the the number of, if you like, sales clerks or administrative roles, um, retail, uh, trades um, or trade ancillary, that's the group of people that they're pitching to, people who probably have felt the cost of living has been hurting them. So it is certainly a seat that Labor can hold. Um, I'll be interested to see which way it goes. It's a by-election, so it could go anyway. Um, But uh, I'll be interesting to see if, if... things like the tax cuts actually have had some sort of cut through for those people um, or whether they just go, oh, well, I hate the lot of you. You know, you haven't provided me with enough money. You know, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. We'll just have to see what happens. I put Labor in with a good shot at holding the seat. I could be wrong. Um, It's a seat that's been Liberal before uh, on a number of occasions. So it's a seat that does swing. It would be a loss for um, Albanese for a range of reasons. Um, it reduces his majority, um, which, you know, he cemented a little bit further with Aston, but will now go backwards if they lose. It's also a punch in the nose, if you like, over voice, over current government. But it's a midterm 
uh, election. I expect them to lose some some skin here, but we may well see, you know, whether Peter Dutton has done enough to keep the moderate centrists in line or whether they all continue to say, well, no, you're not the incoming prime minister. Thank you very much. And I'll be covering the Dunkley by-election live on Saturday night. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room podcast. Thank you, Stuart and Mike, for joining me. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you, Ben, and thank you, Mike. And thanks, Mike. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow the Tally Room on Mastodon at tallyroom at mastodon.au or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to the tallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Chris DeBro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.